Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today, I'm very excited to be with Dr. Christopher Chabri, who is a professor and co-director of the Behavior and Decision Sciences Program at Geisinger Health System. He is also faculty co-director of the Geisinger Behavioral Insights Team, abbreviated BIT, which is focused on small nudges that can change human behavior within the healthcare system in real time. He was formerly an associate professor of psychology at Union College in New York for 10 years, and prior to that, he was a lecturer and research associate in the Department of Psychology at Harvard for five years. His AB in computer science and PhD in psychology are from Harvard as well. He is one of the originators of one of the most famous psychology experience. The link is in the show notes, but think about a gorilla in basketball and co-author of The Invisible Gorilla, which is an awesome book. I highly, highly recommend you read it, and a link to that is also in the show notes. He is a chess master and used to write a monthly column on games in the Wall Street Journal. For more information, visit his website at www.shabri.com, also in the show notes. Welcome to Dr. Shabri, and we're going to go on a first-name basis again, and I'll call him Chris. Welcome to Chris. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with Chris today because I'm, as I mentioned just now in his biography, I'm a huge fan of The Invisible Gorilla. I think of it as a very smart, thoughtfully written book that really delves into in much greater detail than we can today, everyday illusions that we are all susceptible to. Before we go into those, I'm going to ask Chris to tell a little bit of a story about himself that maybe his biography doesn't necessarily speak to. Well, thanks for the kind words about the book. They're much nicer than what some of the Amazon reviewers say sometimes. I think I'll go from the what you mentioned about me being a chess master. It's true that I'm a very serious chess player. I started playing when I was when I was young. I think I learned when I was five years old and started playing in tournaments when I was 10. And I got up to a fairly high level. And I sort of took a break for quite a while and, and came back to it later. As we get older, and this is not my main focus of research, but I certainly got a, a life lesson in this from, from the return to chess. As, as we get older, our cognitive abilities change. Some of them improve, some of them get worse. I think dealing with that and you know appreciating it is an important part of sort of self-awareness that professionals, decision makers, you know, people with responsibility like really need to try to be aware of and, and learn more about. And I certainly got a lesson in it. it. Turns out it's hard to play chess. It felt easy back then. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to improve also. It becomes harder to learn, you know, new things. Not that you can't, but it's hard to improve and make incremental progress like once you've sort of gotten to a certain point. But the people who are the really best are able to do that. And so I focused a lot more on like how would you study how would you prepare like what's the role of like sleep and nutrition things that i didn't think about at all in my 20s you know suddenly they have a much bigger impact on performance and i'm sure that's the case for doctors and other like you know clinical professionals in healthcare as well because a lot of what we do as professionals whether it's in sports or games or you know medicine or whatever is a performance as much as it is a a demonstration of knowledge, right? So a lot of times in chess, you can clearly see the distinction between like, I know a lot of things about chess, but I just don't seem to find the right moves as much as I would like to, right? I still lose games, even though I know a lot. And I think that's the case in every profession, right? You can make bad decisions and have poor performances for reasons that have nothing to do with how much you know, or how much you assimilated in school and in training and so on but with the day-to-day -day impacts on performance. I had really started delving into 
different concepts in cognitive psychology and how it could help me think better, especially as I am older now and more susceptible to not having a good night's sleep, as you mentioned, or other stressful factors in my life. How did you come to study perception and everyday illusions? I got involved with one of my professors who was a psychology professor, cognitive psychologist. He studied visual cognition, mental imagery, um, you know, how we visualize things, how we see things that aren't there, how we can use those kind of skills to make better decisions. The same guy eventually talked me into going to graduate school. I didn't want to go to graduate school. He talked me into it. When he went on sabbatical, we had a new professor named Dan Simons who was working on visual attention. He asked me to be the teaching assistant for a course he was teaching to undergraduates. Dan had the clever idea of having us all do an experiment together. And so we did this experiment that Dan you know, wanted to do, and he knew about the history of this area of research. I was totally ignorant of it. And that was the experiment where you have these people like walking around, passing basketballs back and forth. In the middle of that action, it's, on, it's recorded on videotape. In the middle of that action, uh, an unexpected event happens. In the original research from the 70s, it was a woman walking through carrying an umbrella. But Dan and I and the pe- people in the class had the idea to try something even sort of more unusual than that which is to have a person in a gorilla suit walk through the video. When we published the paper with the results of that experiment, basically showing that most of the time, about half of the people who watch the video and count the number of times the ball has passed don't see the gorilla at all. They have no memory of it. They don't report seeing it. They're surprised to hear that it was there. Um, sometimes they demand to see the tape replayed you know, so that they can convince themselves we're not lying to them. You know, that result that a lot of people don't see such a salient thing right in front of them, you know, making a fairly dramatic experimental demonstration of this effect called inattentional blindness, the sort of being essentially blind to something that you're not paying attention to when your attention is directed elsewhere. That's how I sort of got into studying what we wound up calling cognitive or everyday illusions. We came up with that phrase because we wanted to describe the phenomenon of how every day of our lives, multiple times a day, we sort of make these assumptions about how our minds work, what we'll notice, what we won't notice, what we can remember and, and don't remember, how good we are at things, uh, how great our knowledge is. And we called those everyday illusions because we thought that they're sort of ubiquitous features of our everyday life that reflect a misunderstanding of how our own minds work and could be really relevant in a large you know, number of areas of life. And that's what our book was wound up being about. The surprising event that happens in that video is actually present for nine seconds in the frame. And yet still 50% of people don't notice it. And I'm actually one of those 50%. I didn't see it the first time I watched that video completely. And I was also typical, as you just described, very much like, how could I have not seen that? And so I also appreciated how you describe in your book that it was a VHS tape at that time. So it's not like even now where I could say, oh, well, you just are actually showing me a different video. You could actually literally rewind the VHS tape and see the unexpected event as you're rewinding and then replay it. And it's literally really there. There's no chance for any doctoring of it at all. Yeah, it's a good example of how there were some advantages to old tech (laughs) compared to new tech, right? (laughs) Maybe a little more trustworthy. One thing to note is that although some people see these unexpected events and some people don't, no research to date has found any significant differences between the kinds of people who see and don't see. It doesn't really appear to be a personality trait or 
something about your cognitive ability, I think anyone on any any given day can fail to notice something like that. So just the fact that you like haven't run into a bicyclist on the street while you're driving and talking on your cell phone doesn't mean you're incapable of doing it, right? You're incapable you're capable of being inattentive and if the circumstances are right, you can be inattentionally blind to some salient thing that that could happen right in front of you. That speaks to what you do right in your book, The Invisible Gorilla about everyday illusions because we're just all susceptible to them on any given day or time point. So are you also saying then that there's not really anything we can do to prevent being susceptible to it? No, not 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 saying that exactly. I think totally preventing oneself from making these kinds of cognitive errors is probably too much to ask for. Instead, what we need to do is, is, you know, try to design our environments to help us reduce making them, try to be aware that they exist and to sort of think more uh, deliberately, more intentionally about them and about how we might be acting on these mistaken intuitions and assumptions. I, I think to me, for me, it's been, well, I don't want to say lifelong because I didn't know about any of this stuff when I was a kid and so on, but it's been a long process to try to keep on noticing these things myself, notice them in my own behavior and reduce them. You know, one of the things we do is we we give ourselves lots of distractions, which make us vulnerable to not noticing the important things. So you always have to be trying to make sure your environment doesn't contribute more to that than it should. One thing I show in talks on this subject is I show pictures of intensive care rooms and operating rooms and so on. And there's tons of stuff in there that, that, you know, that can, can distract us and occupy our attention. And some of it for good reason, because it's giving vital information. But I think also some of it is is distracting at the same time. And that's not even counting all the people who are in there like talking and so on. So we always have to be sort of like aware of what our environment is doing to our attention, what it's doing to our memories also, you know, how we can be overconfident in certain situations and that can lead to bad decision making and so on. The first thing is to be aware of it. Second thing is to try to sort of adjust your environment, your processes, your rules to make you less likely to make a serious error as a result of that. Like we're never going to be perfect, but if we could sort of like cut out the serious errors, um, you know, that would be a great start. Yes, really. A lot of my job is visual recognition. It's visual attention. It's noticing what's on the patient's skin, what's in a patient's slide. And yet, especially with microscopic slides, because we can take them around to our colleagues and we actually have here a conference every day where we can bring our cases that we have a question about and at least one other pair of eyes, but sometimes multiple around a multi-headed scope looking at the same slide. It always amazes me how sometimes literally something that I feel like I haven't seen is pointed out to me. It's some ways disturbing because I'm like, you know, this is my job, but in a way it's comforting because that's what the conference is there for. It's nice to hear that there isn't really a attentional defect that leads to half of people not noticing that unexpected event. Can you give an example of an everyday illusion and how that affects you in your work life or in your daily life? Sure. I I think one of the easiest ones to talk about is memory because we've all had these experiences. Um, We tend to act as though our memories, especially our own memories, are more detailed, objective, permanent, and unbiased than they really are. It's often easier for us to see when other people are sort of over-reliant on their memory, you know, versus other sources of information. It's harder for us to see because our vivid, our memories can be very vivid. And when we do retrieve a memory, it sort of comes back as though it's like a perfect replay of what happened. We don't, we don't see all the fuzzy parts and we don't see the errors that have been inserted over time. And we don't see the ways it's been combined with other memories to create something that never actually happened itself. We're totally unaware of all of that. The, 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 the retrieval when it happens seems so easy that 
you know, we don't we don't realize that we have a tendency to act on the basis of memory when the memory feels true. And I think in any kind of professional decision making, but perhaps especially in, in, in medicine, where there's so much information that might come from the past, like things we learned before, information about the patient, the patient's own history. And of course, that's on the on the provider side, on the clinician side, but also we ask patients questions. When I say we, I'm, I work in a health system, but I don't actually ask patients questions. But you know, in, in healthcare, we ask patients questions and we sort of expect them to be able to answer them based on memory. It's always amazing to me. Like I can't even remember some of the stuff on the intake form where it says, tell me all your history of all these things. Like I don't, you know, some people find it hard to believe, like how could you forget surgery? But I'm pretty sure I must have forgotten a surgery that I had at some time in the past. We are capable of forgetting many more things than, than people realize. There's really no known limit of a kind of memory that can't be distorted or forgotten or revised or whatever. And I think we we underestimate the frailty of memory, our own memory and that of others at, at, at our peril quite a bit. That's helpful. I like how you tied that into healthcare. A line from your book, I think that also is very relevant is you wrote, if you become seriously ill and are unable to communicate, doctors will rely on this document, meaning advanced directives, and may inadvertently take actions that contradict your wishes. This is related in your chapter on the illusion of memory because it was shown that people would write down what they wanted to happen and then were asked again sometime later and they actually said something different of what they wanted to happen for their advanced directives. And they thought what was most interesting is not necessarily that they changed, although that's interesting in itself too, but they thought that what they were saying that was different was exactly the same as what they had previously asked for as an advanced directive. So even something as serious as that, what do you really want to happen at the end of your life? People don't remember it, shockingly. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, it, I think we also do have this bias to sort of think that whatever we think and believe and know now, we always thought and believed and, and know, knew, or we used to at least. So I believe in this study, which was conducted by um, a group including Elizabeth Loftus, who's sort of one of the world leading experts on memory distortion. Patients who had an advanced directive, I think were asked again after a year, like a year later, it was about a year's time passed. And they did not remember having sort of made different choices a year earlier. And it's kind of a salient example because you would think that like how you want to be treated at the end of your life, you know, is really important to people. And no doubt it is. But even that kind of important information, we can fail to remember and think that whatever we think now is what we've always thought. Right. Thank you for covering everything that you have so far. One is the illusion of memory, which we just talked about. And one is the illusion of confidence, which I think also doctors can be quite susceptible to that a doctor could have in their own ability, but also that a patient might also inadvertently confirm that they trust the doctors. They have confidence in the doctor's knowledge and recommendations for treatment, even if maybe if the had a little bit more knowledge, they wouldn't necessarily agree with it. Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of a feedback cycle, right? So part of the illusion of confidence that we write about in the book is that people put more stock in someone else's confidence than they should. So not only in a healthcare context, but let's say in a criminal trial, right? A confident witness will be more convincing than an unconfident witness. The problem is that confidence doesn't always perfectly match, you know, your ability, your competence or something like that. In fact, we are often more confident in our abilities and our knowledge and our memories than we should be. So if if I trust the people who are more confident, but they're more confident than they should be, we can sort of get a, a little bit of a feedback loop going on here where admitting uncertainty becomes a negative and a discouraged behavior. And, you know, in the book, I mentioned the story where I, when I had Lyme disease and I was kind of surprised that the doctor who diagnosed me actually took out a book and looked at a picture and then took out another book to look up what the recommended treatment was before prescribing me the antibiotic and so on. I never really encountered that before, but reflecting afterwards, I realized that 
probably more likely to be correct if they actually looked it up than if they had just said it. Like if they had said it, I probably would have believed it just as much. But on, on reflection, maybe we shouldn't be so trusting. Not to say don't trust your doctor, but don't don't sort of like think there's something wrong when people are actually checking their knowledge and checking their confidence and trying to make sure they get things right instead of just speeding through it and and uh, you know and potentially making making a mistake. Right. Yeah. The the more that I read about these concepts in cognitive psychology, everyday illusions, decision making, bias, I keep coming back to the essential thing is awareness or maybe attention, just paying attention. These illusions exist. I'm susceptible to them. It could really have serious effects for people around me, especially, say, the patients that I'm treating. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, if there were just one thing, I would say be aware that your attention is more limited than you think it is. So that's what we call the illusion of attention. In radiology, you know, they have this concept called satisfaction of search, which refers to the idea that if you're if you're looking for something in an image or a set of images and you find it, you're sort of going to stop looking for other stuff. Or you're going to be a lot less likely to notice other stuff that wasn't the target to start with. But the fact that you didn't notice something doesn't mean it's not there. And likewise, the fact that a patient, you know, didn't didn't notice a symptom or something like that doesn't mean it's not there. I think we sort of intuitively know that. Thank you so much, Chris, for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 